people within the LGBT community um, experience discrimination on so many levels, um, and particularly in healthcare. And we know this was more and more research and data and surveys come out from these individuals that, you know, they face um, discrimination in the setting of a doctor's office, which, you know, you think you wouldn't, but they really do. And a OBGYN office or waiting area can feel like a very heteronormative environment. It can feel very much, I'm surrounded by straight culture, you know, and I don't see any reflection of me anywhere. Dr. Ruth Yamani is one of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN's leading experts in gender-affirming surgery and gynecologic care for transgender people. On this episode, we discuss Dr. Yamani's recommendations for safe, trust-filled patient-provider relationships and what surgical, clinical, and preventive health care can look like for trans and non-binary people. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's HealthCast. Today on the Women's HealthCast, I am so excited to be joined by Dr. Ruth Yamani, who is an academic specialist in OBGYN in our Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the UW. Um, Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for having me. We're here today to talk about your clinical expertise in providing um, GYN care, gynecologic care for transgender people. Um, Who comes to see you for these services? Um... I'd say a wide spectrum of people, um, people who identify as trans men, trans women, people who don't identify as that as um, non-binary or genderqueer come to see me. Um, yeah, so I'd say a, a wide variety of folks. Yep. In your, so you are an OBGYN provider. Um, How do OBGYN physicians, um, APPs, other folks who kind of provide in this space, most commonly work with trans patients? So why do they, why do trans patients come seek care from an OBGYN clinic? I would say for many of the same reasons that cisgender um, women come see me for care. You know, it could be um, preventative health care services, like... Um, cervical cancer screening, breast cancer screening, perhaps it's regarding contraception, contraception, um, STI screening, um, uh, fertility planning, um, prenatal care, preconception counseling, really the whole spectrum of things. Um, and, um, you know, if, um, abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, maybe the one difference is um, with uh, trans men that's coming in for gender affirming surgery, so planning for a hysterectomy um, uh, might be a slight difference, if you will, but for the most part, um, I'd say trans men and women, cis uh, gender women, non-binary people, everyone is coming to me for the same reason. You just mentioned um, that gender-affirming surgery can be a common reason you see people. Um, tell me a little bit more about that surgical care. Like, what all can that include? Well, probably one of the more common scenarios where I um, meet um, transgender 
men or um, individuals who identify as non-binary or somewhere on the like a transmasculine spectrum um, are coming in to talk about gender affirming surgery. And um, for these individuals, it often means um, a hysterectomy um, and removal of the fallopian tubes. And um, often the um, ovaries as well, um, but not for everyone. And as I see these patients, I try not to assume that what exactly they want, because some people, um, not everyone's the same, right? Um, people have different wishes and preferences. Um, and kind of going through what a surgery like this would mean, um, that it is a major surgery, that there is, you know, significant recovery time afterwards. And also a pretty, like making sure we have a conversation regards, regarding um, family planning for the future, right? As I tell individuals once, you know, you being on testosterone um, does not mean that um, you can't go through, you know, cryopreservation um, for um, fertility purposes um, and egg retrieval and things to that effect. Um, but once we remove your ovaries, you know, that's kind of it. Um, and so we really also end up talking about future family planning and like, do you see yourself ever wanting to use your, you know, genetic material to create a fam family? You know, clearly there are many different ways to create a family. And I think people in the LGBT community understand that very well, but it makes, I think makes people think really pause and think, hmm, hmm, do I want to use, <laughs> you know, um, my uh, ovaries here for this purpose? Do I want to carry a pregnancy in the future, you know? Um, and so I think having that conversation almost always is necessary as you're planning for these gender affirming procedures. Um, and, and people who are true, you know, with more questions or interests, I do refer them to our um, REI providers um, to talk about it further, you know, and what would that look like? Um, it, they would likely have to stop their hormone therapy for at least three, like for s several months. And what would that look like? Um, during pregnancy, they'd have to be off of um, testosterone as well. So, um, just giving them the information so they can make a decision that they're comfortable with with something that can be very permanent. Um, you know, for people with some doubt, I've, they've elected to leave one ovary behind just in case for the future, you know, if they change their mind. So, um, yeah, that's like, so when I see someone for a gender affirming surgery discussion, we also end up talking about family planning at the same time. So you mentioned um, contraceptive care. What kind of uh, care or counseling or conversations can that include sometimes? Well, I think, um, and we're talking with regards to trans men, trans women, or genderqueer people. Um, so the, you know, contraceptive counseling, first of all, um, it, it's probably something that if, if someone isn't 
say like on their um, reason for visit isn't the number one topic, I'm not going to jump into that topic, right? Um, we might evolve in our conversation and get to that point. Um, but uh, if someone is primarily coming to see me for that, you know, we dive in sort of personal questions a little quickly. We talk in regards to contraception, um, like inquiring on who they're sexually active with. Are those um, individuals um, cis or trans? Is there any concern for pregnancy? Things to that effect. And, and certainly if they're coming for contraception, I'm presuming that there is a potential risk for pregnancy, right? Um, but I think some of the maybe reservations that may arise when talking about contraception, I'd say maybe trans men specifically could be concerns of how this will these contraceptives will affect me, you know, um, in the sense that if that individual is, let's say, taking testosterone, um, will taking a estrogen or progesterone containing contraceptive counteract the effects of their testosterone? So I think that's a worry that individuals may have, but actually it, it really doesn't um, affect the efficacy of their testosterone. I do counsel them that testosterone is not a contraceptive itself. There have been recent, you know, surveys done and research done showing that I think up to like nine or 10% of providers or sorry, trans people reported that up to nine or 10% of providers counseled them that testosterone is a contraceptive, which is absolutely not true. And I think that's a big piece of misinformation that has existed out there. Um, and thankfully, ACOG recently came out with, a, I think it was a practice bulletin regarding OBGYN care for transgender individuals. So really, very relevant to what we're talking about today, um, which specifically highlighted that testosterone is not a contraceptive. Those individuals still could ovulate and have a risk of pregnancy. So I think I talk about how um, if there's a need for uh, contraception, um, the potential the, the low risk of their, it affecting uh, the effects of the testosterone. But I also dive into that there are side effects from many of these contraceptives. Um, some of them could be dysphoric even. You know, if, this, if a pill is going to create breast tenderness as a side effect or um, irregular bleeding, things like that, I want to forewarn them about potential side effects and what to expect and see what they're comfortable with. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that, if there are other considerations for different types of contraception that you might discuss and kind of, you know, definitely do shared decision-making best best practice, um, but just like being really open about, you know, the different options between like progesterone-only methods or combined estrogen-progesterone methods that you might more highly recommend one than the other. Correct. Yeah. So I think, it, again, it's really individualized. And I hope to try to go over all the options and the pros and cons and, you know, uh, for each one for, uh, again, individualized counseling. So then that individual can make a decision about what's best suited for them at that time. I was going to save this for a little later, but you mentioned um, side effects from some pills that can be dysphoric. And 
So I guess I want to talk about other aspects of office visits uh, with an OBGYN provider that that could feel dysphoric or uncomfortable and how you approach those. And in particular, I'm kind of thinking of like pelvic exams and cervical cancer screenings. How do you approach like emotional, mental comfort needs and physical comfort needs for that particular aspect of care? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I don't think we can live under the assumption that everyone is okay with a pelvic exam. Everyone is okay having a pap smear. Um, it is a, a rather invasive, uncomfortable personal personal exam. And for a, you know, I think of, again, I, I'm sort of phrasing this as there's some maybe facets towards working or providing OB-GYN care to trans patients, but for the most part, it's very similar approach to cisgender women who come to see me for their exams. And first of all, I would say the, the any type of pelvic exam should be indicated, right? Um, and secondly, I think having a discussion with the individual beforehand about what this exam entails um, is really helpful to sort of creating a little bit of trust in doing this very, again, invasive exam. And if that means, you know, I have models or diagrams and I show them what I'm anatomy and what's being done, or I show them the speculum before I use it, um, about what to expect. You know, if for folks who are particularly anxious, perhaps this is a staged process. You know, the first visit is us just meeting each other and talking and going through things. And a future appointment, we would be actually doing the exam or procedure, you know. I think sometimes, you know, folks need some kind of a distraction, if you will. You know, um, headphones, a book, um, music, uh, sometimes a support person in the room to help get through it. And some folks might take need to take and some anti-anxiety medicine beforehand um, to help them calm enough to go through with this. You know, because again, I, you can't assume that this exam is going to be a-okay for everybody. It really, it really isn't. And I think we have to respect people's feelings around it and, you know, whatever histories they may have surrounding these exams as we do them. So certainly having a level of trust, I think, before doing it is important and educating the patient about what's going to be done is important as well. I am very interested in the, the, the trust question, the trust, I guess, facet of the relationship building that you do with all of your patients. I am I'm very confident that you do that with all of your patients. And I would like to know, like, kind of how how you approach building that relationship and, like, laying a really solid groundwork for trust and comfort and letting folks know that working with you and being with you is kind of is a safe, affirming space. Yeah, I think that's really important for any provider, certainly every OBGYN. Again, when you're doing this more invasive, you know, exams and whatnot. But I, I think even, you know, People within the LGBT community experience discrimination on so many levels, and particularly in healthcare. And we know this was more and more research and data and surveys come out from these individuals that, you know, they face um, discrimination in the setting of a doctor's office, which, you know, you think you wouldn't, but they really do. And a 
OBGYN office or waiting area can feel like a very heteronormative environment. It can feel very much, I'm surrounded by straight culture, you know, and I don't see any reflection of me anywhere. And, you know, one, probably the first step in order in creating a feeling of safety for these individuals is probably seeing some kind of non-discrimination policy posted clearly at the front desk, signage or imagery that shows LGBT-friendly images or inclusivity, uh, not always having photos of cis man, cis woman, baby, you know, uh, to create that feeling of welcome, that it's safe here. Some folks will wear like uh, preferred pronoun badges, things like that, that kind of these little small things people are looking at as they are approach to say, okay, I think it's okay here. I think I'll be all right. And I think of the front desk almost, I call it the front line here, because they're some of the first people interacting with these patients. And before even patient gets back to see me in the exam room, they've gone through so many layers to get to me in different interactions where these things that could really put them off or make them feel uncomfortable. Many times a patient in the room will tell me, hey, at the front desk, someone was using the wrong pronoun for me or told me I wasn't supposed to be here or just really didn't feel comfortable with them. And so I think not just providers, but also our um, the healthcare personnel at the front desk, the schedulers, the nurses, medical assistants, all of us have to sort of demonstrate kind of proper language and just have be educated about how to approach these patients and how to treat them. and. Things like saying the proper name is important, the proper pronouns are really important. And I think that's how you're kind of building on that trust for someone to be there. And by the time they get back to me, you know, I'm hoping we can have a conversation and address their concerns for the day. But I always lead with that I'm certainly not an expert um, in all facets when it comes to caring for transgender patients, but if I do make any mistakes or errors or things that I can improve upon, I ask them to let me know, you know, and certainly not making assumptions about these individuals as well, you know, about what they might be interested in or what would be best for them or not. So I think that creating that um, comfort to get to the point of doing a pelvic exam really starts from the degree of comfort that patient may have when they walk in the door from the first steps. Um, And to get to the point to do that exam and feel comfortable with that, they really need to feel comfortable along the process. So I I definitely wanted to talk about that too, knowing that the the whole experience from walking in the front door of the clinic, every every step and every person and every interaction can kind of affect how comfortable, safe, how ready someone feels to be in a space. And like, wh- what kinds of changes and interventions does a health system need to make for their staff, right? So what kind of preparation and competency and support do health systems need to make sure that every everybody who's ever interacting with folks who come into the clinic is, is like, ready to really set that good stage and, and build this good environment? Yeah, I think, um, I think that's a great question. It's like, you know, there's a lot of different things that can be done, but you know, specific sort of competency training, uh, educating schedulers, uh, 
medical systems regarding people in this LGBT community about, you know, asking for the proper pronoun, asking for, you know, how would you like to be addressed, um, someone's chosen name, not having assumptions that everyone who comes to an OBGYN office for care is going to be very, you know, feminine appearing necessarily, that there might be um, people with more of a masculine presentation. So I, th I think those are probably um, some important aspects. That also translates into the uh, electronic medical records, where now we can see, you know, preferred pronouns. I think in Epic at the top, like left corner, you can see that and like someone's preferred name. So you can get that information really quickly um, before you call a patient or, or so just to get some background information. So I think starting there is would be is very helpful. So we've been talking uh, quite a bit, I think, about like the environmental and social aspects of these um, clinic visits, patient visits, but I kind of want to circle back to some of the clinical considerations too. In particular, um, I'm thinking about like preventive care, like cancer screening, for example. What are sort of like the, the latest recommendations for cancer screenings, prevent preventive care like that, that everybody needs to know, like regardless of gender, this is kind of what you need to be ready for, prepared for, yeah, no, it's it's great. Um, you know, I I I had a um, attending in residency who also um, had a real interest in working with trans patients in Los Angeles, and um, they said that essentially, if someone has an organ, you should screen that organ for cancer risk. So, in a trans man who still has their cervix, we should be doing routine cervical cancer screening, right? If they um, still have their breasts or referred to as a chest, then we should do, you know, clinical breast exams um, and follow the same guidelines we do for people who are cisgender. And, you know, again, I think walking through what those exams are before doing it is really important because um, we cannot assume that that individual is comfortable with the exam and some aspects of that exam can be uncomfortable or um, create feelings of dysphoria in doing it. Even some of the, you know, uh, as I mentioned, like terminology referring to things instead of saying a breast exam, doing a chest exam uh, might be more comfortable for a trans patient. And in particular, as you're doing the pelvic exam, you know, I try to avoid using certain terminology. Um, the example I will give is I could ask the patient, how do you prefer to have your um, genitals referred to? And some um, patients have said like for the labia, calling them folds, uh, like outer folds. Um, you know, I've heard people just refer to like this hole in my body. You know, so kind of what's their, what's comfortable for them. And I sort of keep the, um, I think I'm just mindful of what I say as I'm doing the exam and how I'm referring to parts of their body. Um, for a, uh, a transgender woman, you know, um, coming in for routine screening. And I would say I probably, I think I probably honestly see fewer trans women 
in my practice, but I have seen them before um, uh, here and, and, and in California. But if doing a breast exam for them actually might be gender affirming, at, um, something that they are very comfortable with. And, you know, the idea behind breast cancer screening in people who are trans women on estrogen, really the data is kind of mixed. But the thought is if someone has been on this um, estrogen or therapy for a long period of time, several, several years, and over the age, I think, of 40 or 50, you can consider doing um, uh, mammograms. For, you know, screening for, let's say, like prostate cancer, you know, if that individual um, still has their prostate, they should have that exam. I usually tell these patients I'm not as familiar with doing a prostate exam, so it's good to have a family medicine provider involved who can do that, of course. But essentially, if I say if, if that organ is present, it really should be screened for cancer as long as it is, it is present, you know. Okay, I have two things I want to that kind of jumped into my head. But the first one, I just really appreciated that you started talking about terminology. Um, you know, as I was reading up, I'm a cisgender woman, right? So this is not an area of expertise or comfort for me necessarily. So I wanted to do a lot of good prep and reading and make sure I was ready to have to do an okay job at this conversation. Um, and I'm just so glad that you mentioned terminology because the the practice bulletins and the suggested recommendations I was reading um, talked so much about like following individual leads. So the importance of like having that conversation of how do you want me as your as your doctor to refer to this this part of your body and then just like being really respectful of of the answer you get and kind of I, I feel like that's such an important probably such an important part of also establishing that good and trusting relationship. Exactly. I feel like that's a, a huge part of it. And, you know, it's, again, if I'm referring to parts of their body in ways that don't make them feel comfortable, how can they feel comfortable with me providing their care, you know? So I think just like you're um, trying to use the appropriate uh, pronouns and names um, that they go by, why not use the same terminology to refer to parts of the body, you know, uh, as I converse with them. In my, you know, medical documentation, I may still refer to the cervix or the uterus and things anatomically, but in my conversation with this patient, it, it might feel better to use that differing language. Um, and I, I um, there was a, a really good article in, I think the Gray Journal in February of last year that was literally titled Contraception Across the Transmasculine Spectrum. And it was excellent that it also had a whole ta like tables showing instead of using this term, try using that term for anatomy. And I'm, I'm pulling that up as we talk here. So uh, instead of saying like female reproductive organs, you could say internal reproductive organs or internal organs or something like that. We had said, instead of saying breasts, saying chest, likewise, breastfeeding, say chest feeding, you know, things like that. So again, just because um, I think terminology matters and 
sometimes I think it's hard to remember the different terminology to use. Um, so I thought that that article is really helpful for me to think, oh, maybe I can use that um, phrasing instead of, you know, the very standard anatomical phrasing I would refer to. Yeah. So the other thing that kind of um, jumped into my head when we were talking about cancer screenings was um, just general age-related screenings like bone density, bone mineral density, thinking about, um, and then, you know, especially in the context of, of possibly, not everyone does, but um, using hormone therapy, um, like how does that affect some, some, some aspects of body health just kind of as you use the hormones for longer stretches of time or as you're aging. Um, and I'm kind of curious what though, what that counseling looks like, what people need to be kind of aware of and prepared for. Well, yeah, I, I, again, I think some of these guidelines are not really strict. Um, and I could be mistaken here, but with, um, like bone density screening, I'm not as familiar as the exact recommendations, but I don't think they're significantly different for individuals who are on, um, estrogen or testosterone or things to that effect, or if they've had um, their ovaries removed, as in they don't necessarily need earlier bone density screening, um, uh, unless there are other considerations like fractures that had happened or things to that effect. So I don't think that really changes those screening guidelines. You know, as part of kind of health maintenance, um, when folks are on these um, things like testosterone or estrogen, et cetera, often there um, can increase risk of concerns for heart disease or high cholesterol, things to that effect. And so it's, again, routine monitoring for those conditions and these individuals. I don't think they get any particular extra monitoring or testing for it, uh, unless they had, it's when they, I think, just first start using hormone therapy. But after long-term use, I don't think the screening or the monitoring is any different than with cisgender people. And again, I could be mistaken here because maybe that dives more into the primary care aspect of things that I don't get to as much, but um, at least that's my knowledge of it. I guess that's a good reminder too, that for lots of folks, for everybody really. Um, we have broad healthcare teams and lots of different people involved in our care with different expertise. And so it's, it's good also to remember that there are a lot of resources even outside of OBGYN. Correct, yeah, yeah. And I definitely don't uh, wanna presume that I know everything and I can address everything as well as the next person could, you know? So I, I always admit my limitations and knowledge. I would like to thank you, Dr. Yamani, so much um, for talking with me today. Uh, we've been on the Women's Health Cast talking about uh, GYN care for trans patients. Thank you. Just thank you so much for being here. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's a pleasure. On our next episode, I'll talk to Dr. Ellen Hartenbach about second opinions why people ask for second opinions, how to approach that conversation with your healthcare provider, and a special clinic at the UW Carbone Cancer Center to offer second opinions for gynecologic cancer patients.
The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.